Hello, my rebels. Today, I'm going to show you that not only is Trudeau back as prime minister, but censorship is back stronger than ever, not just from Trudeau himself, but from the Canadian Association of Journalists, who are so, so proud of themselves for getting Maxime Bernier censored today. I'll give you the details on that. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com. It's eight bucks a month. And what do you get? You get the video version of this podcast along with video, weekly video shows from Sheila Gunn-Reed, David Menzies, Andrew Chapados, and the satisfaction in knowing you're helping to keep Rebel News strong. We don't take a dime from Trudeau. We rely on you. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, the election's over. Trudeau's getting right back down to business. It's September 23rd, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Look at this story and marvel at the impeccable timing of it. SNC-Lavalin corporations and two former top execs charged with fraud, forgery by RCMP. Let me read a little bit of it. The corporate entities of SNC-Lavalin Inc. and SNC-Lavalin International Inc., as well as two former senior executives of the Quebec-based firms, have been charged with a series of fraud and forgery offenses by the RCMP, according to a statement released by the RCMP on Thursday, former Vice President of SNC-Lavalin, Normand Morin, and former Vice President of SNC-Lavalin International Inc., Kamal Francis, have been arrested but released. They and the two corporate entities are facing a number of charges, including fraud against the government following a lengthy and comprehensive criminal investigation by, get this, the National Division RCMP Sensitive and International Investigation Section. The alleged crimes in the story were between the years 1997 and 2004, and lucky for Trudeau, the RCMP waited until after the election was over before filing the charges. I mean, they said it was a sensitive investigation. I wonder what that means. This is the company and the cronies that Jody Wilson-Raybould was going after before Gerald Butts orchestrated her ouster as justice minister. By the way, Butts, who was drummed out in disgrace over this whole fiasco, has been absolutely rehabilitated by Trudeau's CBC. He was on panels during the election. And lucky for Trudeau, his hand-picked crony runs the RCMP too. Here she is getting a big old hug from him. Yeah, I'm sure she'll investigate him after that. So it's good to know the RCMP is completely in the pocket of Trudeau. I, I, I didn't really much have much doubt about him. We forget about the depth of the corruption in Canada, especially in Quebec, especially in liberal parts of Quebec, liberal donors in Quebec. Jody Wilson-Raybould had no chance against them. So expect to see lots more of this. I mean, Trudeau takes re-election as vindication. He has said as much. On election night, he says he has a clear mandate. I don't know if you paid attention to it, but Vancouver Granville, Tlaib Nurmohamed, the liberal candidate, won 
succeeding Jody Wilson-Raybould. I mean, isn't that really proof of who speaks for Canada? He took Jody Wilson-Raybould's old seat, the most ethical to the least ethical. It's this guy. How much have you profited on those 25 in the past decade? I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I think it's important to talk about, uh, I'm going to answer that question again, so I'm going to be sure. I yeah, how much have you profited on those sales? I, when you ask, I'm going to, give me a second to just make sure I have the right, um, okay, so, sorry, ask me the question again, sorry. Yeah. Okay. How much have you profited, personally or business-wise, on the sales of those 25 properties in the last decade? While I can't give you an exact number, what I can tell you is that it is by no means the number that has been bid forward, but what I can also tell you is that I am absolutely committed to any and all measures that we have put forward that would that would apply. I am still waiting for a number outside here if he has one. Uh, bottom line, he doesn't seem to think or won't say that his past business dealings are part of this unaffordability problem. Yeah, he's an MP now. You know, I had such low expectations for Aaron O'Toole. I thought he was going to lose 10 or probably 20 seats. Um, so that when he got exactly the same number of seats he had before the election, I got to tell you, I <laughs> was better than I had expected at the beginning. Uh, but he thought he was actually going to win. And fair enough, there were a few weeks in the campaign where it looked like he might based on the polls. But he didn't. It didn't work. And we have massive debt growing inflation, unemployment still over 7%. We have a civil liberties crisis. We have a healthcare crisis. And by that, I mean, thousands of surgeries have been canceled. Entire industries are still limited, such as travel. And then you have Canada's foreign policy disasters from China to Afghanistan. You have all this and Trudeau's threat to censor the internet too. And people are getting a bit tired of Trudeau and they see through him. And the best Aaron O'Toole can do is no better than before. In fact, conservatives got fewer votes than under Andrew Scheer. I see some conservative MPs are angry. Here's Chris Warkington. Here's Mark Straw. Maybe they weren't thrilled about having to cheer for a carbon tax and cheer for banning guns and cheer for vaccine passports and cheer for open borders immigration and yet <laughs> not win a single seat in Toronto, which was always the promise to bargain. So yeah, I think O'Toole is weak and if Jenny Byrne, Stephen Harper's campaign manager, is weighing in against him, well, that could spell trouble for O'Toole. My expectations were him for so low, he exceeded them by breaking even. But you know what you call someone who comes in second in an election? A loser. There's no second place. I mean, I'd like to say such a person is called the leader of the opposition, but I haven't really seen any opposition yet from O'Toole, at least not on the key issues I just mentioned. So Trudeau continues his march unabated. He doesn't care if he has a majority or a minority. Really, what would he do differently? Here comes internet censorship. Here's a story in Blacklocks today. I'll read a little bit of it for you. Predict another internet fight. Heritage Minister Stephen Gilboa's web regulations could, quote, make Canada's internet one of the most censored and surveilled in the democratic world. An advocacy group said yesterday, Open Media Vancouver launched a petition drive to counter any reintroduction of two cabinet bills that lapsed in the last parliament. Liberals are poised to push forward with their harmful internet censorship plans. Matthew Hatfield, campaign director for Open Media, wrote in a message to donors, our newly elected gov government is cynically taking advantage of our political fatigue and frustration with the internet to try to trick the public. 
Yeah, that's full speed ahead, but let me show you something really nuts. Look at this. Check the offensive requests we received today, yesterday and today from far left activists masquerading as journalists. We tell them to get lost. Others wrote defamatory columns comparing our supporters to neo-Nazis and saying we are violent and racist. They're panicking. That's a tweet from Maxime Bernier. And then he has included snapshots of emails he received, exactly as he describes them, calling him a Nazi leader, really. So Bernier tweeted that, and then he retweeted himself, adding, if you want to write to these idiots to tell them what you think of their disgusting smear jobs, here are their email addresses. They want to play dirty, we will play dirty. And then he posted their emails, their business emails, which are available on their websites, by the way. I mean, my email is not a secret, as are rebelnews.com. You can find that online. Um, these reporters are from Bell Media, Global, Hill Times, whatever. Their emails are public. He didn't give their personal emails or their phone numbers or their addresses or their photos. So it's true when he says they really are leftist extremist activists, if you read their questions to him. And he did publish their emails, their work emails. I mean, it's not private. He didn't dox them. He didn't give away their home address or anything like that, really. Uh, and the reason it's a bit hard to see what I'm showing you here, because all these Maxime Bernier tweets were deleted, not by him, by Twitter. They deleted what he had to say. He's a leader of a party. They deleted it. Now, you might not like Bernier. You might not like what he said. You might think that he went too far here, or he wasn't polite, or he wasn't even grown up, maybe, or appropriate. Okay, fine, but really... They called him a Nazi, and he called them idiots and published their public email addresses. Where's the crime? But they deleted him, just like the Leaders' Debates Commission deleted him from the debates, just like anyone who isn't part of the establishment gets deleted. They try to delete us all the time. We go to court when they do that. But look at this. This wasn't just Twitter. This was the Canadian Association of Journalists, too. Look at this. Here's an official tweet from the... Canadian Association of Journalists. Journalists have a legal and ethical obligation to send questions and request comment from our politicians going after them for doing their basic duties. Unacceptable and dangerous behavior. What? Unacceptable and dangerous? What, calling them idiots? Dangerous, yes, very, very dangerous. Take it from the vice president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, Fatima Syed, who says so. She says, it took Twitter about eight hours to do this, but I'm considering this as a win for the right of journalists to ask questions of anyone running for public office. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You can ask Bernier whatever questions you want. Getting Twitter to delete his tweet isn't helping free speech, and you haven't really done anything for journalists. You're, you're, you're silencing a politician who, who spoke back to you. That's the Canadian Association of Journalists. They, they were behind the censorship. I don't know if you remember, because it was only days ago, our reporters were banned from attending the federal leaders debate. Didn't hear a peep from the Canadian Association of Journalists. We really were censored. I don't know if you remember, but all during this whole lockdown for 18 months, our reporters have been arrested. Our reporters have been attacked. Silence from the Canadian Association of Journalists. Silence, but mean tweets from Maxime Bernier? Unacceptable and dangerous. But feel free to beat up rebel reporters. They arrested David and took him to the police station. They kept 11 of our reporters out of the debates. When we finally got in, Trudeau and, and the block leader and Jagmeet Singh wouldn't even talk to him. No, nothing from the Canadian Association of Journalists. I note 
that that vice president, Fatima Syed, works for the Narwhal, a far-left website that received a $254,000 secret payment from Trudeau's bailout right before the election. That was part of my scoop the other day. Now, I wonder if that's the reason why she's censoring Bernier, carrying water for Trudeau, doing errands for Trudeau. I wonder if that's why, or if she just naturally believes in censorship. But here's what I know. When Trudeau brings in his censorship plans for the Internet and when they come for us at Rebel News, there won't be a single voice in the mainstream media standing with us. Like Fatima Syed, like the Canadian Association of Journalists, they've all been barred off to support Trudeau's censorship. Or worse, they truly believe in that censorship even without Trudeau's cash. Stay with us for more. Remember back in 2018, the master of the photo op, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, went down to the border where uh, immigration officers had detained families, including some children who were trafficked across the border. Now, they were in a form of detention which had fences, and it was a very dramatic moment. AOC posed tearfully at children in cages. It became a crisis. Well... There were a few hundred detainees back then, but look at this. More than 10,000 people who have crossed the border who are now under a bridge, outdoors, in the elements with very poor food, clothing, shelter, medicine. It's a disaster, yet Kamala Harris, the border czar, according to President Biden, is nowhere to be seen. What a crisis. But... Does the media care anymore? Where are those glamorous photo ops? AOC is nowhere to be found. But our friend Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart.com, is right here. He joins us now via Skype from the Los Angeles area. Joel, great to see you again. It's been a little while since we've talked. We've been so focused on the Canadian federal election. I've never seen such a thing as is happening on the U.S. border. It's, it's like an entire town is waiting to cross in. Tell us what's going on there. Well, a large number of people have received the implicit memorandum that there's an open border at the southern U.S. border with Mexico and that the Biden administration is letting people in if they're part of family units. The only people really being turned away are, in some cases, single males. So if you arrive with children or you're a pregnant woman or you have a family, you can basically find your way into the United States. Theoretically, you could be deported. You might have to show up for a court date at some point in the future. But everybody trusts the Biden administration to drop those obligations, and they're hoping Democrats will pass some kind of amnesty. They know there's no more border enforcement. So the word has gone out, and the latest wave of migrants is Haitian refugees. Now, these are not people coming directly right now from Haiti, which has suffered political turmoil and an earthquake. These are people displaced by earlier problems who have been living comfortably or uncomfortably, in other parts of the Western Hemisphere, specifically in places like Chile and South America. And they are making their way north through Central America with the assistance of cartels. And they are arriving at the Rio Grande, at the southern border of the United States, and they are crossing over. And they're crossing over by the thousands. And there are so many of them that the existing Border Patrol facilities cannot house them and cannot even process them. So there are tens of thousands of them living under an underpass 
near the Del Rio crossing in Texas. And the Biden administration finds this very embarrassing. So they are threatening and warning they're going to deport some people. They have removed some several thousand people, but they've allowed several thousand others to remain in the United States. So while they're talking one game, they're playing another, and everybody is onto it, including most of all the migrants and the cartels. So we have a complete breakdown of law and order at the border, and that breakdown is gradually making its way across the rest of the United States. The migrants are being flown to other places, they're being moved to other states, and the American people, including Democrats, blame the Biden administration for its deliberate policy decision not to enforce existing border laws and border protections. There's also a dust-up over the use of horses. Now, you know how this usually goes, right? There's some kind of image or video that circulates. And once in a while, there's something really bad happening. But a lot of the time, it's the prejudice of the viewer or interpreter or the person putting it out on social media. So there was a video and some photographs of Border Patrol agents on horseback. And one of them was grabbing the T-shirt of a migrant and the reins on the horse seemed to be flying out at an odd angle. In another video, a Border Patrol officer is seen waving one end of his reins in a circular motion in an attempt to intimidate one of the migrants, appropriately so, you could argue, from crossing the river, which the migrant was not allowed to do. No use of lethal force or even direct force of any kind, but basically just trying to provide an obstacle that would deter the migrant. That was turned into a story about Border Patrol officers in cowboy hats using whips <laughs> against black Haitian migrants in scenes reminiscent, we were told, of slavery and the hunt for escaped slaves crossing into freedom. That made the White House very upset, we are told, and now they are going to shut down the use of horses in the Del Rio sector. Now, if you've been to the U.S. border, and I have, you'll know that Border Patrol agents often ride on horseback, the reason being that's the best way to get around some of that border terrain. So now, if you're telling the Border Patrol agents they can't use horses, that means they can't stop the migrants at the border. They can't outrun the migrants at the border. They can't disperse the migrants at the border. They can't use the one vehicle or the one device that has been somewhat useful on some of these patrols in remote regions. And it's all because of a kind of hate crime hoax. And we're going through a whole investigation now in the usual rigmarole. And this is, again, a common practice along the border under Democratic and Republican administrations. There's nothing racial about it. If it's racist, then Democrats should dismantle all the horse-mounted patrols they have in every major city, including here in L.A., including the liberal, almost communist enclave of Santa Monica nearby here, which has horses as well. I've seen them in, on patrol with the police. I mean, horses are useful, especially in crowd control. And that's why the Border Patrol were using them. There's nothing nefarious or racist about it. But that's the latest wrinkle and the latest chapter in this seemingly never-ending saga of Joe Biden's failure at the border. Yeah. Well, I understand that some of the states had taken action, some of the more bellicose Republican governors. I understand, for example, Texas sent several hundred uh, National Guard to the border. How does that work? I mean, in, the, in Canada, uh, the federal government obviously is in control of foreign affairs and the border. And when, when in doubt, um, the authority falls to the feds. I don't know the U.S. Constitution as well. I understand when in doubt things go to the states. What role, if any, can uh, Governor Abbott or others play to defend the border if Biden won't? Well, it's very limited. And 
the problem was first dealt with during the Obama administration when the state of Arizona actually passed a law, SB 1070, that attempted to allow state and local law enforcement officials to check the immigration status of people whom they stopped for otherwise legitimate reasons. And that law was struck down at the Supreme Court, which held that immigration is an inherently federal function and therefore the state and local police cannot carry out immigration enforcement. There's a separate question of whether state and local law enforcement should cooperate with federal efforts at law enforcement. That's something that Republicans say they ought to do. And if the federal government comes and says, we would like to know if there are illegal aliens in prison facilities, let's say, uh, many people on the Republican side believe that state and local authorities should cooperate. But right now, states like California have declared themselves sanctuary states and they're refusing to cooperate. So Democrats basically have taken contradictory positions. They want it both ways. They want to be able to control immigration law by, you know, not enforcing it when they run the federal government. But when Republicans run the federal government, Democrats say, no, 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 the states and local governments have the power not to involve themselves in immigration law. So basically, the Democrats want it both ways. And thus far, the courts have let them get away with it. There's not much that states can do to enforce border security if the federal government won't. However, the Texas Department of Public Safety has been trying to stop the illegal migration, and they've been getting some support from other states, typically Republican-governed states like Florida, which sent over a team. Now, what they do in those roles is usually just supporting search and rescue, rescuing migrants from deserts or from rivers, because lots of people drown or starve or are exposed to extreme temperatures. And, you know, that's a lot of what the federal border patrol has to deal with. So states can provide supporting roles that don't directly involve law enforcement, but involve some of the other activities that the federal officials might otherwise have to do. So they can free up those federal officials to do what is exclusively within the jurisdiction of the federal government. They can help. And, and by the way, under a previous governor here in California, even a Democrat, Jerry Brown, sent the California National Guard to do various backup activities near the border. He did not want them involved directly in border enforcement. That would have been politically too difficult here in left-wing California. But he did help what the Democrats were agreeing at the time was a kind of migrant crisis. Now that you have a Democrat in charge of the White House, they don't want to agree that there's a crisis at all. In fact, there isn't a crisis. Many people believe, and I think it's probably true, that a lot of this is by design. Democrats created a situation in which the border would necessarily be overwhelmed thus creating political pressure on Congress to act by passing some sort of amnesty, thus creating millions of new grateful Democratic voters, many of whom, by the way, have been relocated to red states or swing states to help the Democrats take over. This is no, no conspiracy theory. This is the Democratic Party attempting to take advantage of the crisis for maximum political leverage. And that's why they have no interest in stopping people at the border. They're not asking people if they've been vaccinated at the border. If you come to this country legally, you have to be tested for COVID. You now will have to show that you're vaccinated. But if you come across the southern border illegally, they're not going to test you. They're not going to ask you if you're vaccinated. They're just going to have you quarantined if you show symptoms. But that's it. Hmm. You know, it sounds a lot like what Justin Trudeau did when uh, Trump, very early in his term, talked about limiting um, uh, travel to America. At that time, it was from uh, countries with uh, endemic terrorism, Trudeau tweeted out, everyone's welcome here, and basically fired a starter pistol for a border between Canada and the United States at Roxham Road is the name of the road. And 
tens of thousands of bogus migrants who had had their refugee hearings in America and were going to be kicked out, were going to be deported. They, quote, self-deported from America into Canada. And Trudeau welcomed them by the tens of thousands um, on purpose, loved it. Obviously, they'll vote for Trudeau and the Liberals. Trump didn't mind it because it got rid of people. It really did cause self-deportation from America to Canada. It wouldn't surprise me if quite a lot of these Haitians who are coming into Texas now make their way to Roxham Road because Roxham Road is with the border between New York and Quebec. They speak French in Quebec. There's a large Haitian community already in Quebec. I bet that pipeline goes Chile, Mexico, Texas, New York, Quebec. That's my uh, prediction. I don't know what you think about that. Well, you know, the Haitian immigrant population of the United States is one of the most successful and productive groups of immigrants. I mean, they've really excelled in the United States, the legal immigrant population from Haiti. What we have here is not a question about Haitians per se, or Mexicans or Colombians or Bangladeshis or anyone else who's coming here. And by the way, they're coming from all over the world. It's not just people coming across a land border initially. People are coming from island nations like Haiti, from distant continents. This is a question about whether the American people have the ability to control our own border and to decide who gets to come into our country. The Democrats think not. The Democrats are treating it as if everyone in the world has a right to come to the United States and to live off our work, our taxes, our institutions, and to be a burden to our society. I mean, yes, some hardworking immigrants tend to be very helpful and they contribute more than they take, but that is the situation with legal immigration. With illegal immigration, it's not so clear that's the case. And we just can't have this free-for-all at the border. There are all kinds of crimes happening. There are gang rapes of women and children in some cases who are being taken advantage of by some of these criminal gangs in places like Panama and elsewhere, all along the chain. This comes hand-in-hand in some cases with drug smuggling and so forth. Uh, this is really about sovereignty and, again, about the democratic self-governance of the American people. Do we have the right to decide whom we want to admit into our community as residents or as citizens? The Biden administration thinks not. What is interesting, though, is that suddenly the Biden administration, since this situation has developed with the Haitian migrants, because they're all living in completely horrible conditions under this overpass in Del Rio, the Biden administration is now trying to show people that they're deporting some of these migrants. So they are putting some of them on airplanes, mostly single males, and supposedly sending them back to Haiti. This has resulted in two other unintended consequences. One, Democrats are being accused by journalists now of racism because they're not putting the Mexicans on planes necessarily. They're putting the Haitians on planes. So it's only once large numbers of black people start showing up at the border that the Biden administration seems keen to take action. Now, I don't believe that's true. I think the Biden administration is incompetent in general, and they're, they're equally incompetent with regard to all sorts of migrants. They don't want to deport anybody. They make the same sort of show in any population group. But what's interesting is just in this news cycle, since the Haitian migrants are at the heart of it, is that you're starting to see reporters basically accuse Biden of racism, which is very entertaining to conservatives because it's nice to see them hoist by their own petard, so to speak. But the other thing that's happening is we had the recent resignation of Biden's handpicked envoy to Haiti, who resigned over the deportations, as well as over the Biden administration's policy toward the current interim Haitian government. Apparently, the United States under Biden is regarding 
the current interim government, which has taken office in the midst of all this turmoil and assassination and so forth, we, we are somehow working with that government as the interim government. And the envoy that Biden picked to deal with Haiti says this is a big mistake. We're ignoring Haitian civil society. We're ignoring the wishes of the Haitian people. And he resigned. He wants no part of it. Hmm. So you're seeing the Biden foreign policy fall apart on every front. And this particular immigration crisis, this little piece of it, is telling a story of a much broader failure within the Biden administration, not just on migration, not just on the border, but on just about every policy. Yeah. Well, listen, it's amazing to catch up on this, and, and that's fascinating about Haiti. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but you made me think of the massive airlifts out of Afghanistan. There were some Americans on that airlift. I understand there's plenty still trapped behind but 100,000 Afghan nationals, I understand, many of whom are now housed on U.S. bases. And is that part of the same thing, bring 100,000 Afghans over to America, questionable vetting, but you got yourself 100,000 Democratic voters? That's, that's enough to swing a few districts. Well, we'll see. I mean, it's possible some of them will vote Republican because they see what a terrible job the Democrats did in, in Afghanistan, you know, in much the same way that many Vietnamese refugees have voted Republican since arriving from South Vietnam after the collapse of that country in the mid-1970s. But you're right. In general, the Democrats have tried to encourage this culture of uh, dependency among new migrants. They really create the idea that migrants, whether legal or illegal, depend on the largesse of the Democratic Party, and most people believe it. I'd say probably about 70% believe it, 30% vote the other way. But if you go to a naturalization ceremony in Los Angeles, you'll find Democratic Party activists camped outside with tables and tents registering people to vote as soon as they become citizens. Hmm. You know, uh, that's something the Republican Party could do. The Republican Party, for some reason, doesn't really do it as well as the Democrats do. So you could give the Democrats, I suppose, credit for being more organized in that sense. But they're not just organized to sign up legal immigrants to vote. They are letting it be known very clearly to millions and millions of illegal aliens that if and when they gain admission to this country, if and when they become citizens, they will have the Democratic Party to thank. And the Democratic Party hopes through them to rule in perpetuity. The only obstacle right now is the slow drift of Latino voters to the right as they see the far left-wing Democratic Party policies like defunding the police, making them more unsafe and making it harder to find work. But the bulk of migrant communities still vote overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party, with a few exceptions, like uh, Cuban-Americans, for example, who have a strong tradition of anti-communism, and uh, like Persians, for example, a sort of subset of immigrants largely within the Jewish community, you know, one of the only areas of Los Angeles that voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020 was North Beverly Hills, which is heavily Persian. Anybody who's experienced the oppression of left-wing government directly tends to vote Republican. Uh, but the Democrats do a pretty good job of making sure that migrants, whether legal or illegal, think that they have the Democratic Party to thank for their presence in the United States. Hmm. Last question. It's hard to believe, but we're pretty much halfway there between the last election and the 2022 midterms. Um, can you give us, uh, is it too early to start thinking about what those might look like? Uh, last I heard that Biden's doing poorly in the polls. I even saw one poll showed Trump is ahead of Biden. Um, miscalculations on a lot of different fronts, the, the Afghan debacle. Um, if you had to look ahead a year, I know a, a, 
anything could happen in that uh, long a time. But what do you think 2022 is shaping up to look like? It's impossible to know for two reasons. Number one, it's a long way off and a lot of things can happen. I think the country has decided that Biden can't manage it. But what we saw here in California was Democrats have successfully mobilized their own voters to reject anything that smacks of conservatism or Trump. So it's possible Democrats could still motivate enough of their voters to turn out to protect their lead in the Senate, if not the House. The other issue is the voting mechanism itself. We have undergone a revolution in voting methodology in this country with vote by mail and all sorts of other things. And many Republicans fear that their votes will not count. So not only do Democrats have an advantage simply because they're better geared up to handle vote by mail and things like that, uh, but Republicans are discouraged from voting. We saw that in California as well. Republicans don't have faith in the process of voting anymore. And it's possible that all of the changes Democrats are putting in at the state level and perhaps at the federal level will discourage Republican turnout. So it's, it's far too early to tell. Wow. Well, Joel, it's great to catch up with you. Thanks for such a comprehensive briefing. And we look forward to our next update. Thank you. All right. There you have it. Joel Pollack, Senior Editor-at-Large at Breitbart.com. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back on my show last night. Francois writes, best show yet. Well, it's nice of you to say. Paul writes, I drew the line with vaccines. Have not, will not. Oh, but it's easier for grown-ups to do it. What if you're a kid in college and you can't get your degree without it? What if you're not self-employed? What if you work for a company and they fire you? It's terribly hard for most people who, are, who do not have some independent strength. Most people must succumb. It's not consensual at all. I'm, I'm pointing out that, yes, I'm glad you're standing, holding the line, but many people can't. I find that terrifying. Harry writes, currently they're calling it a vax passport. Soon it'll be morphed into a climate passport. Yeah, you're probably right. And here's a clip. I don't know if I showed this to you. Here's Dan Andrews, the premier of the Australian state of Victoria, saying, no, no, no. It's not even a vaccine passport because you've got to get your regular boosters or you'll be blacklisted again. Take a listen to him saying that. We have to try and get our freedom back get the place open, but give our nurses a fighting chance to be able to care for the inevitable people who will get very, very sick. These sorts of passports are designed to do exactly that. They won't be there forever. I can't say, as I stand here right now, how many, uh, how long it'll be on, how long it'll be a feature of things. But, you know, arguably, it won't be a vaccine passport you'll be showing in the first half of next year. It'll be your booster passport to show that you've been to have your third jab. Yeah, they don't plan to end this anytime soon. They won't end it unless we somehow find a way to end it. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, see you at home. Good night. Keep fighting for freedom.